China has definitely done more to make its currency attractive as a foreign reserve or reserve currency than the US. We start pricing assets off Chinese interest rates rather than the US interest rates, then the US will be in big trouble. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On the Margin. Today, I am joined by Mr. Russell Clark. Russell, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me, having me back. Yeah, thanks very much. A lot of topics that I'd love to cover with you today. Um, you know, firstly, you did this great episode uh, with Grant Williams about nine months ago. Uh, we kind of talked about um, Japanification and looking towards Japan and the monetary policy that they've kind of taken as a model for where we might be headed in the U.S. So I'd love to just kind of start broadly there. I know you spent a lot of time in Japan. I know you've traded a lot of JGBs in your day. So when you look at kind of Japan and the monetary policy that they've undertook, um, what are some of your big takeaways and how much, how appropriate is it to use them as a model for what might be happening in the U.S. and the world more broadly? Yeah, absolutely. Look, you know, uh, you know, so originally when I looked at Japan, you know, and it's probably hard for I suspect you're a little bit younger than me, Michael. I'm going to guess, but uh, I've actually got the Benjamin Button thing. I'm aging backwards. Oh, okay, I'm 90 fantastic. <laughs> um, but there was a time when Japan was really seen as an outlier, uh, and you know you would often get people saying, you know, their policies are crazy. It's going to lead to you know the blow up of the yen. The yen's going to collapse, uh, and all sorts of anarchy. Inflation was going to explode higher. Um, you know, and that was what you used to hear in the 90s and through the 2000s as well. And actually, I think it's widely recognized that Japan was uh, a sort of a foreshadowing of what has happened through the rest of the least developed world. Uh, emerging markets, I'm not sure where we put China anymore, if it's an emerging market or not. Uh, but certainly in the developed markets, it has followed uh, in the lessons of Japan. Uh, and you know, the reality is that, you know, if you talk to me a few years ago, uh, certainly up to around 2015, 16, uh, and then maybe for a year or two after that, uh, what I would have said was that Japan was a source of capital uh, to the rest of the world. So they'd be lending money to people. Uh, and typically the way I looked at it is that they were the patsies at the poker table. So uh, a good example would be uh, in subprime, right? You have all these... You know, all these companies that knew they were lending money to bad people that couldn't pay them back, but they knew they could package them up and dump them on uh, Japanese institutional investors who were tired of getting zero or 0.25% and they buy them. And, you know, and that was sort of like that model was that the Japanese would force their money into the States and American entrepreneurs, let's call them entrepreneurs, uh, would then find bad credits that they could sell to them. And then when that process ended, uh, what you would see, the yen would appreciate because the flows would stop. Uh, all that money in Japan would go into JGBs. So yields and JGBs would go lower again. Uh, and you would see big credit problems in, in, in subprime. It was in the US. When the euro crisis blew up, it was in Europe. Emerging markets in the sort of 2012 to 15 period. That was a really a good, powerful, uh, strong model for understanding how the world worked. And since 2016, it's uh, it's sort of broken down a little bit, um, I'll be honest with you, because 
what you've really seen is that uh, yields uh, have stayed low, even mm. as uh, it's very you know, equity markets have punched out new highs. Uh, you haven't really seen bad things happen uh, per se, mm. and yet yields have continued to go lower. Um, and so the model sort of fell apart a little bit to a degree. Um, mm. And I do think there have been some big changes in the way the world is working since 2016. And it's something that's a little bit tricky to get, you really get a grip, grip on it. I think everyone is sort of speculating that, you know, for me, and I think the idea that you're talking about with food inflation, one idea I had was that because uh, food prices have been so somnolent, uh, central bankers have been able to act with this sort of huge degree of freedom. And that's why we see yields so low. And so I speculated uh, that um, rising food prices would start to create a changing environment. And the way it did, uh, what you've seen is like uh, countries where food inflation and food prices has a big effect on uh, broad inflation have indeed raised interest rates. So Brazil has raised interest rates quite aggressively. So has Russia. Uh, but you, you'd struggle to see pretty much any tightening out of Japan, Europe, or the US, to be honest with you. Uh, it's almost yeah. like, okay, yeah, the, the inflation number has certainly been there, but you haven't seen that reaction. Um, and so it's a, it's a tricky one. Is that it's still to come or is the food uh, uh, spend so small for the average person, uh, it's not so important? Or, you know, if you want to take a cynical view, uh, Big central banks don't really care about poor people. That's mm. possibly one other, you know, uh, you know, they care more about stock market uh, and other things. Uh, and, and to be fair, I think we were discussing this before the interview started. I'm still surprised that, for example, in the States, the minimum wage has still not been raised. I know that in the big cities, very few people work for seven twenty-five an hour, which is the federal minimum, minimum wage. And most states have also pushed them up. But that is still the minimum wage in the states, uh, to my surprise. I, I thought mm. the first thing Biden would do uh, on becoming president would jack it up to like 15, 15 bucks or something like that. That still hasn't mm. happened, um, even with food prices going higher. So it's, it's like, uh, you know, a lot of the theory we had is played out to a degree, but not as strongly as I thought. Yeah. So there's a lot to kind of break apart there. So I want to just see if I can summarize, um, you know, because this paradox that you laid out with Japan, I thought was so fascinating, which was basically this, uh, y you know, seemingly it's difficult circle to kind of square in between. You have a country like Japan, which has a huge amount of sovereign debt, uh, but a colossally net positive foreign investment position. So you weirdly have this country that owes a lot of money to itself but there's still huge investors uh, overseas, which is very funny. So I love this model that you have of basically, you've got the Japanese kind of, you know, sending their money uh, overseas, right, into various different uh, countries and in different asset classes and kind of causing these financial bubbles, right, over, and that has good explanationary power for kind of the dot-com bubble, for the GFC, uh, for the euro crisis, and then they would kind of bring it back into Japan and that would cause a stronger yen, right, and kind of a, a you know bad position for their their local stock market and stuff like that. You said that that um, that worldview kind of changed in 2016 in general. Why has that system changed um, in your view? Do you have an understanding like what you know what caused the, the change? Why is that no longer the case anymore? Yeah, you know it is interesting. I mean, I've I've 
uh, I've been looking at it from a lot of different ways. So there is one uh, way that looking at that is still consistent with that historical example, mm. going all the way back to the Asian financial crisis. And mm. uh, that view is that if I look at uh, Asian financial crisis, I look at the dot-com, I look at the GFC, all of them were preceded briefly by very small tightening in Japan. Mm. Ever so tight, very small. All right. What I'm saying is like raising interest rates like 10 bips in mm. the case of 2006. You know, yeah, just a little bit, right? Um, and then with a lag, everything kicked off. Now, why I say in 2015-16 is different is in 2016, Europe and Japan, and Europe has a lot of Japanese type elements, then went to negative interest rates, uh, mm. and then have followed that up with very, 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 very strong monetary easing. And uh, to my surprise, uh, what we've seen despite very high natural gas prices, LNG prices in Asia and rising food prices in Asia, uh, the BOJ, so Bank of Japan, has yet to really embark on even the tiniest amount of tightening. So mm. if that sort of model is still in place, it still works because basically we haven't seen any tightening in Japan. What is really good about that model is that if Japan ever did tighten, because it's considered such a sort of nowhereville financially these days, particularly in the States, just like in .com and GFC, it will catch everyone by surprise. But what I think has really changed, and certainly COVID has continued that change, is I think the reason why Japan used to raise rates was the states used to be like, you know, very low interest rates, you know, deliberately keeping your currency weak is a, is a form of industrial policy. It's very bad. Mm. You shouldn't do that, Japan. You should be playing, playing the rules like the rest of us, right? I think that's what the states used to do. And then now when you look at sort of like Biden, Powell, uh, and those sort of the, the people in charge, you know, there's no real plan to balance the budget in the US that I can perceive. And I don't, despite their recent talk, I don't really perceive the Fed as particularly hawkish. And so maybe that's what's really changed is that prior to 2015-16, there was this consensus that, you know, runaway fiscal policy was bad uh, and deliberately trying to keep your currency weak was also considered bad. And the US used to police that. Um, and now, you know, we've moved to this new era where no one really cares about that stuff because mm. nothing well, bad has happened. And, right. you know, and, right. uh, you know, you stuck into some very difficult, tricky thoughts about what exactly does that mean and how does that end, uh, which I've been grappling with. Some of the conclusions I come to, I really dislike. <laughs> One of them is that unless, so one of them, uh, which is, I think, interesting, because when I talk about food inflation uh, previously, it was driven by the observation that food prices in China were much higher than food prices in the US, which I found a bit surprising. Um, mm. China has definitely done more to make its currency attractive as a foreign reserve or reserve currency than the US. Right. So they're trying to fix up their financial system. They're trying to fix up, 
get away from state guarantees of different corporates. They're, you know, and they've allowed an equity bear market to take hold. They've taken on the big tech who have a cartel, did have a cartel type position uh, in a lot of uh, industries in, this, in China. And so the contrast to the US is quite dramatic now. Um, and US, you know, China's always had very expensive property markets. US now also has very expensive property markets after a, mm. a long period of relatively affordable ones. And so the, for me, uh, the idea of China starting to become more attractive as a foreign reserve currency is starting to build. And if, if they did actually manage to achieve that, um, that is when the States gets into, into real trouble. Uh, because there'd be no reason for people to leave their money in dollars uh, from Asia. The, the counter to that, and the reason why people say that uh, you know the the renminbi could never be a global reserve currency is because, uh, funnily enough, exactly what you just mentioned, right? Like, look at what uh, China just did to their technology sector, right? They basically cracked down and made this entire two hundred billion dollar uh, sector kind of obsolete overnight. Um, so you know, there's like a whole bunch of people in the U.S. that say. Well, why would I ever put money over there? Uh, you know, because you know uh, the the company is really just you know part of the states, um, you know the states' ownership, and you know other investors say, well, maybe uh, I'll still put money over there, but I have to attach a discount rate to that because I know there's some probability, however low, that the state could just swoop in and and seize um, you know whatever my whatever I invest in over there. So it's I guess that would be the counterpoint to to what you're describing, but I'd be curious to see what you say to that. What has been very unusual is that. U.S. is running a record trade deficit again, because uh, that's the U.S. way. Um, and what you see is that all the main trade partners to the U.S. in Asia, uh, Korea, Taiwan, Japan, uh, I think even India, you know, all these other Asian trade partners all have gotten back to record foreign reserves. So they've built up foreign reserves to record levels, except for China. And China's by far the biggest. So China... Back in 2014-15, uh, used to have uh, 4.5 trillion of foreign reserves. Uh, and that, mm. during the sort of China deval square, scare of 15-16, that fell down to 3 trillion. And what's interesting, it hasn't really rebuilt. It's sort of stuck at a 3.2. Now, as for me, I was going, why, why have we not seen this rebuild? And originally, I would have been completely in the sort of bearish camp of this is a bad sign, China's going to devalue, uh, it's a very negative thing. I started to look at it a bit more carefully and I asked myself the question is why do, why do countries have foreign reserves, right? Why do you hold foreign reserves? U.S. doesn't. U.S. just has a bunch of gold over in Fort Knox, right? Uh, and it, <laughs> some of the other big countries like Germany, and you have gold reserves as well. Mm -hmm. Typically, the reason you hold foreign reserves is you want the dollars to be able to buy your imports, okay? And because your imports are priced mm -hmm. in dollars, you have to hold dollar foreign reserves typically. Uh, and that's, you know, and that's very old school EM analysis of, so the, you know, back in the financial crisis, uh, Asian financial crisis, places like Korea didn't have enough dollars for their imports. And so it's often, you see crises uh, start in emerging markets when you have rising commodity prices because the, the the amount of money they're spending on imports is going up because of the dollar price is going up of oil, for example, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm like looking at China and thinking, 
No, maybe the reason their foreign reserves aren't going up is they're able to buy more of their commodities priced in renminbi rather than dollars. That makes sense. Because if it's priced mm. in renminbi, they need dollars. They just print the money, right? It's no big deal. Mm. And then I go, okay, well, is that plausible? And then you go look at like Russia, which is a big oil and gas producer. They have a stated policy of de-dollarization because of the sanctions that are being put on using uh, dollar assets. So Gazprom, Rosneft, all these guys. Right. And they say they've largely de-dollarized their exports. So that means they're, they're pricing their energy exports in euros, ruble, Chinese yuan, right? And mm. so, and then the reality is as well, like, okay, so you get this money, you get a dollar, you know, if you're a commodity exporter, you get whatever you sold it in, right? And then, you know, you, you're pretty much incentivized not to convert it into your local currency. You might do it, but you, you know, you might just want to hold it offshore. You know, you're getting in China, you know, you can get like a free 4% on that. In the States, where are you getting? 25 pips, that, with 5, 6% mm. inflation rate. Um, so the the dynamics are there. Um, and, but the only issue, and this is also the big issue, and again, starts in 2015-16, is ever since China, US still started this, Cold War doesn't feel quite right. Chill War or something like that. Something below a Cold War. It's not quite, you know, yeah. Uh, the Chinese have become much more reticent on exactly what they're doing, uh, which has made everything much, much harder, uh, particularly and, and particularly for the food story. Um, they don't release their corn reserve data. Uh, so it's hard to tell how much corn they need to buy and stuff like that. So it's become much more difficult. But, you know, I just... You know, it's just looking at and thinking, and I think you put up a, on that on that chart you put up before. China yeah. is now the biggest trade partner for most people. So I've been developing this theory a bit more about what you know, trying to think what what makes a reserve currency. You know, why what currency do you choose a reserve currency? Uh, and you have lots of different theories. Trade is one, but I'm starting to lean towards technology as being the lead factor. Huh, interesting. And so I'm thinking, okay, where is China relative to the US on technology? I mean, and also the reason I was thinking about it was that uh, under every metric I learned in my career, the US dollar should be much weaker than it is. Um, if you look at like twin deficits, trade balances, net international investment positions, everything that historically has worked, uh, but if I'm looking at like tech, you know, the US obviously is leading the world in tech at the moment, but China is up there closely. And if you look at those two currencies, they're completely dominating the yen, the euro, uh, almost any other current currency you can think of. Uh, and so that's why I started to lean towards this idea that capital flows to where technology is most advanced, um, potentially. Mm. I think it's an interesting idea. It needs to be able to work, but it does explain the 80s uh, quite well. I would love for you to get now kind of get in. We talked a little bit about food inflation in general, but if you could explain this theory, because, you know, you know, tying this idea between low bond yields in Japan with the price of food, I, I think that was your starting point, right? But then you kind of expanded it uh, much more broadly than that. So can you talk a little bit about this relation that you see between uh, food price, wages, and bond yields in general? 
Yeah. So, you know, the the idea, which is not, you know, I may, it may still come to fruition. Uh, it certainly is in mm. some parts of the world. Is that uh, if food, food prices, you know, most expenses can be avoided or mitigated except for food. Um, and food has to be, yep. you know, also, and food also can't really be stored. You, know, you can stick a gold bar somewhere for a long period of time. Uh, but, you know, the longest you can store food, like rice can maybe get stored for five years, but it probably be of dubious quality when you came around to eat it. So food is this sort of very important asset, but it can't be stored and it can't really be readily hedged. Uh, maybe the exception of buying farmland, all right, but not easily. Uh, and so food as an important uh, expense most closely matches wage or labor because labor again is not a uh, something that can be stored you can store it for a while right so just take a long holiday you know you go unemployed for a few months you'll have more energy for a few months but you know if you're unemployed for a year that is a lost resource that cannot be uh, recovered um, and so you know for me wages and food prices should move together over the long run. Um, and so one of the observations was in Japan, uh, food prices rose through the 60s, 70s, 80s, and then have done nothing until a few years ago, but basically just stayed flat. And I first went to Japan in 91. Yeah, 91. Uh, and then prices have actually pretty much stayed the same since then. They've risen, they've risen a little bit. But not too much. But then when you look at uh, Japanese wages, they've also done the same thing. They're virtually unmoved from the you know, mid-90s, uh, which I find extraordinary, but it is what it is. So Japan's actually a very cheap place to to buy food and employ people to do things. Um, and so the theory was that as long as food prices stay under control, wages will also stay under control. But that correlation could be the other way around. If food prices are under control, then... Uh, no, if wages are under control, then food prices won't rise. Uh, and actually, I think it is that's the right correlation because what we see in the states, where where, minim, where wages have been rising, even if minimum wage hasn't been rising, is that food prices are starting to rise in the states. Uh, so I, I don't know if you or your listeners have access to to Bloomberg, uh, but you can get this probably from uh, the St. Louis Fed numbers or whatever. Uh, but they have if you type in. US CPI for white bread, okay, uh, strangely start bread in the 60s, but white bread goes back to the 1930s. Um, so I think they must have added in more categories of bread in the 60s and then create a new category from just bread. Uh, what you see back then is bread did nothing through the 30s, it actually went down, did nothing much through the 40s, 50s it started to rise, and the 60s, 70s took off. And then amazingly, in 2010, flatlined. So the longest period of mm. flat prices. And then the last year and a half has started to go vertical. A bit like used cars. Used cars were also flatlining for 20 years and now have gone vertical. Uh, and so I look at this data and think, okay, well, you've got to get wages going up because your average person, you know, average person, so not Bitcoin billionaire or anyone like that, average person, is going holy smokes my my unavoidable expenses are now going up right 
and I, you know, and it's not really, I can't, you know, this is food expenses, you know, so you, you need to get, I see there should be a very close relationship between food expense and low end wages, you know, because they're really, you know, they talk, if you talk about the bread line, you're talking about being able to feed yourself. Um, and, mm. you know, so that's sort of what I, you know, I, I'm seeing play out a little bit. What has been surprising for me is that uh, that we haven't seen more of a reaction from bond markets uh, because uh, you know what I see is you know relatively a, a change in that market implying that inflation is going to be stronger for longer. Um, but I, you know I'm reminded that you know back in the early '80s when there were a lot of changes that were put into place that has made this low so disinflationary environment take hold you know bond yields for 20 percent so it takes sometimes it takes the markets a little while to recognize that um the only issue with the whole food inflation story was that the i originally looked at it because uh pork prices in china skyrocketed and were like six times pork prices in the u.s uh chinese pork prices has now fallen 50 60 percent so profound bear market um and so that core driver has at least disappeared in the short term. I, you know, the reason why this really hit home with me in general is I, I kind of come to finance as an outsider. I have no background in finance. Um, and the more I learn about things, the more it just seems like it's almost, there are all these correlations that everyone just kind of believes. And I feel like the only reason they actually end up working is because everyone believes them. And CPI has always been a really interesting one for me because if you actually look at CPI and like the Fed's preferred measure of inflation, which is core PCE, you know, if you really thought about it from the standpoint of, okay, why, you know, put yourself in the position of uh, you're in charge of a country. Why would you care about inflation? Why would inflation be something that you'd want to keep, keep a rein on, keep a hold on? Well, what you wouldn't want is prices to outstrip wages, right? You wouldn't want people's cost buckets to be growing faster than what they need to be spending money on to the point where they become so unhappy that there's like rioting in the streets, right? Like that would be the Machiavellian way that you'd want to look at it. So when I look at what's in CPI, it's like, how much does this cost bucket, how much do these buckets measure up to what people are actually spending their money on? And when I look at that, it doesn't reflect what I spend my money on whatsoever in, in any sort of real way. So you know, the reason I loved your food price inflation theory is like, that is the universal thing that everyone has to spend money on. So for me, it makes 100% intuitive sense that wages and food should be highly, highly correlated. It's like the one thing that we all have in common. We all need to eat food no matter how wealthy you are. And, you know, what I would say to you also is, I think you're, I, okay, the, you know, Biden didn't come in and hike the minimum wage, but... You know, anecdotally, I've I've driven around like uh, Western New York, and I've been to uh, Ohio recently, and you're starting to see like Wendy's and McDonald's advertising, you know, fifteen, eighteen dollar an hour wages. So we've effectively gotten a hike in minimum wage, honestly, yeah. and and I do think that you've started to see wages go up, and food prices have certainly gone up in the United States. So I would count that as a plus one for your theory, honestly, even if the bond market hasn't recognized it yet. The causation there is is a little bit tricky because I think a lot of the cost and gain, like a uh, gain, like you know, food to a restaurant for you to eat, or even to a supermarket for you to eat, is in mm. fact taken by 
wages. That makes sense. So there's sort of mm. like this, uh, you know, so back in, I'm going to show my age, but when I was studying uh, economics at university, they talked about the wage price spiral. And I think this is what they really were talking about is like, mm. uh, you know, if, as it you know, gets harder to get people, you know, it's harder to get the food from the land to, you know, to, to people, you know, to buy it. Um, and they broke that, but through causing huge unemployment, you know, in the early 80s, basically. So, you know, I wonder if we're going back to those days uh, um, and, you know, where wages are, are pushed up. I mean, it, the other question, of course, Lynn, is, uh, you know, is this, is the price of reduced income inequality, which is definitely a sort of democratic goal, Democrats goal, is the price of that higher inflation? You know, if you if you want higher wages, really interesting. Do you also get higher inflation, and does higher inflation then create higher interest rates, which then hurts rich people more because it it creates downward pressure on assets? If that makes sense. When it comes to crypto, security and custody is paramount. Introducing this episode's sponsor, Ledger, your secure gateway to buy, exchange, and grow your crypto assets. I know I've got a smart audience, so I'm assuming slash hoping that most of you already have your Ledger hardware wallet, but just in case you don't, this is how I think about it. I wouldn't get into a car if I couldn't wear a seatbelt, and I don't operate in crypto unless I can do it for my Ledger hardware wallet. Crypto is really exciting, but it is still the Wild West. There are lots of risks, and Ledger is the easiest way to make sure that you are still protected. And the best part about Ledger is that you don't need to make any trade-offs between security of your funds and utility of your assets because Ledger has Ledger Live, which is a software that syncs right up to your Ledger hardware wallet and you can do anything that you'd want to do with your crypto assets. You can easily send and receive, you can buy and exchange, and you can get access to staking. And they've actually started to aggregate some of the best DeFi apps and services out there. Two of my favorites, Paraswap, a decentralized aggregator, and they've got Lido for staking. And stay tuned, I'm going to keep you guys updated. They've got some really cool services uh, coming out soon. Ave, Compound, and One Inch among them. So if you take one thing away from this, guys, please, please, please make sure that you're protected in this space. Get yourself a Ledger hardware wallet today and start using the Ledger Live app. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Thank me later. You got me really thinking with that maybe the, the price of what the Democrats are trying to do right now is, uh, you know, with solving wealth inequality is actually inflation, which I suspect you might be right uh, that that actually is the case. But I, I do want to, you know, you said this other thing in, in another interview that you did, which is when the price of food goes up, then I forget if you were talking about China or Japan in this specific example, but uh, then the government tends to try to control other prices. They try to, you know, where they have impact on other prices, they'll, they'll try to clamp down. And what I would again say to you where I think your model ended up being right is another way to look at what's going on with these uh, China's like regulatory clampdowns in general, right, on their education sector or like or, you know, commodities and stuff like that, is you could look at this as the rising price of food over there or the worry that people won't have enough food. Um, they're trying to clamp down on other aspects of their economy. They're trying to control the price of something like housing. Like that would be a very interesting lens at which to look through the Evergrande situation, right? Absolutely. Where maybe they let yeah. the developer go because they because they're worried about rising costs of food. So they want to lower the cost of housing or education or whatever else. Absolutely. I, I mean, think I think that certainly is a case. And it's not just China. You've actually seen like in Europe, uh, 
uh, utilities are starting to see pressure to keep prices low, even though the cost of LNG has gone up a lot. So you're starting to see profit warnings from some European util utilities as uh, basically losing their power to raise prices with costs because governments are worried uh, about the pressures people face. Um, it certainly is. And you know what is very intriguing, again, when I was researching uh, uh, food inflation is that uh, historically, governments reacted to food riots. Uh, what is interesting about food riots, they're one of the few riots that often have very high female participation. Um, so if you think about, you know, a mother mm. who's trying to feed her kids and they go, to, you know, they're going to buy some food and it's, they, they can't afford it, you know, that becomes a big motivation. So that's why politically it's, uh, it's disastrous to have food prices uh, rise too quickly or food supplies to be um, inadequate because it's, it creates this huge social tension. And I think you're right. In China, they've been looking at it and going, well, you know, structurally, food may be out of our control now. Certainly, energy is out of our control as a big importer. Uh, mm. So we have to try and control what we can. And, the, and to be fair, you know, the I think this is... The whole Evergrande story is a really interesting story. Uh, I've been deeply involved with it in that the Chinese government, when Trump came to power, got very worried about growth uh, because they were already controlling the property market for a good few years before Trump came in. And when Trump came in, they suddenly realized tariffs going to go up, all these other problems. So like, okay, let's let the property market run again to create a growth environment mm. while we try and wait out Trump and they did weigh him out and Biden came in who has exactly the same policies versus China as Trump in fact in some cases mm. stronger so like okay look this sort of property bubble policy makes no sense it's no advantage and that's why they acted as well as the food price as well uh, and so it's a very you know one of the, I find was one of the more difficulties of the last few years we've become a much more politically driven market uh, uh, which, you know, for me is like a, an Australian now living in London, uh, from a very middle class family. I don't really have the sort of inside track on what, uh, the Democrats or Republicans or the, or the, 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 the ruling, uh, group in China <laughs> are planning to do next, uh, which is a little bit frustrating. Yeah. Um, but we, you know, I'm trying my best to work that out. I want to actually return, though, to something that you said before, which really, um, you know, on this show, I talk a lot about income inequality. I tend to trace a lot of uh, problems back to that one factor. Uh, it's like one of the most consistent historical data points that we have, which is that when income or wealth inequality tends to become extreme, that leads to social unrest or transitions or the rise and fall of institutions or whatever it is. Um, you said something really interesting on another podcast uh, with our mutual friend Tyler Neville, um, about inflation and wages. Uh, you, you, said, you said this really interesting thing that I just can't get out of my head, which is if you stop thinking about uh, inflation as this bad thing and started thinking about it as wage growth in general, which I just, you know, I haven't really been able to get out of my head. And one other principle that comes from Ray Dalio, which is that, um, you know, one person's spending is another person's income. So through that lens, that's really put my head in a loop about inflation because I'm like, okay, as prices go up, that means someone else's income is directly going up 
that much. And I'm trying to circle this square because it's like, okay, prices are going up, but someone's income is rising commensurate, commensurate to that. So help me help me work through like the, these ideas, right? Like how do you think about inflation in general? What's really happening here? If we could get back into a time machine in two, to 2016, I could tell you a story that would make a lot more sense. Uh, the last few years have confused it a bit more. Um, but it was mm. this, there was this irony that uh, historically markets did better under Democrats than they did under Republican presidents. So, uh, and the reason that that is, in my view, is that as a, as a rule, actually it's almost an axiom, if you give poor people money, they will spend it because that's why they're poor. They don't save. They're by definition mm. not savers. They're spenders. Okay, uh, and what happens to an economy when people spend more? It does better, right? And so that's historically speaking why economic growth and markets have done a bit better under democratic governments because they tip the balance. You know, they move money, more money to poor people as a rule. Okay, so even if they do more taxes yeah. or whatever, it's generally a, a relatively strong. Uh, uh, a strong uh, economy. Conversely, when you sort of cut spending, particularly government spending, that affects poor people more. And, you know, if you, food is a really good one, but almost anything. I mean, it's true, very rich people can buy 10 houses or they could have 10 cars. They can't drive 10 cars every day, but they can, they can collect a lot of assets, but the actual activity they spend is limited, right? So when, when money is getting concentrated into fewer and fewer hands, activity is going to drop as it becomes disinflationary and more capital. Basically, rich people save more and more money. So if you give a rich person a million bucks, they're probably going to save 90% of that, right? Whereas you give you know, a thousand poor people a thousand bucks, 900 bucks of that's going to get spent of each person. So 90% is going to be spent. Uh, and so this is why you have this sort of strange, uh, sort of completely opposite. It's like, oh, a Republican president, by the market, by the market, Democrats going to ruin everything. But actually, in, in, when you go back and look at it, it's typically the opposite. Um, and so, and again, this is like a lesson from uh, the Great Depression. Was uh, in the Great Depression, the government constantly sought to balance the budget, and all that did was create this deflationary downward force, which was bad for everyone. Until FDR came in and started raising the minimum wage, started spending money and created the, the upward cycle that continued through to really the 80s and Reagan and, and sort of Thatcher came in and then reversed it again. Yeah, I, I, my, my gut feeling is we're at a tipping point where it is going back that way. Um, but, you know, mm. it's not, it, it's, it's been difficult to invest that way so far because um, it still may not be true. But if my gut feeling is we're heading to that type of environment in my view, uh, but it hasn't quite happened yet. You know, it really gets at this important transition, I think, you know, this idea between labor and capital in general. So, you know, when I hear you talk about, uh, you know, uh, Reagan and, and Maggie Thatcher, right, there, there was kind of this, um, you know, this shift from, you know, a labor-centric viewpoint of the world to a, you know, a more capital-friendly uh, viewpoint of the world. So like Maggie Thatcher, right, she kind of broke the back of the unions, right, over in the UK, um, yeah. and Reagan kind of did the same thing over here in the United States. And, you know, the, the, the way I've been able to kind of get square the circle, uh, so to speak is, you know, prices go up, right. That means someone's income is going up, 
but it's the, a person that is spending the money and it's the income of a business or a corporation, right? So, you know, the profit margin goes up and the amount that gets paid out to local workers goes down. And I feel like what needs to happen over the course of the next however many years is that profit margins just need to shrink and the amount of income that gets paid out to domestic workers has to go up, right? And, and to, to, you know, to your point, you know, from FDR forward, like from the, the late mid 40s into the early 80s, that was an expansionary period, but it also was a period where you can track income inequality and it was actually down. It was, it was, it was a much more equalizing period in at least US history, whereas the 80s onwards has been, you know, inequality has just been exploding and, and running rampant. And, you know, these people who kind of point to, hey, well, hey, you know, you, you can afford a TV for much cheaper than it's ever been, or you can buy, you know, food cheaper than it's ever been. You're just missing the point. That's not how people view their lives, right? People view their lives on a relative basis, right? They look at their peer groups. Uh, they look at what their parents had um, that, you know, you anchor yourself with these, these, these other, these other focal points. So, you know, you can say, okay, well, it's cheaper to buy a TV than it was 20 years ago. I mean, you just, I just think that sounds so out of touch. That's just not how people view their status in the world. So I feel like yeah. there has to be this shift from capital back to labor. Um, and I, I do think with the financial crisis in 08, uh, the reaction to that has been one that's been extremely sort of pro-business, pro-corporate in many ways. Uh, and certainly right. like when the COVID crisis came along, what you saw was the Fed essentially extended a government guarantee to corporates. Now, there were some guarantees extended to workers as well. Uh, but you sort of, you know, when I look at it, what you've seen is that the corporate sector has come to you know, dominate policymaking uh, to a large degree. Uh, and so... You know, it's it's become a little bit too one-sided, um, and so you can see that the uh, and certainly it's very apparent in the UK where we have a conservative government that its economic policies are essentially uh, so left-wing. You would have to go back to at least the seventies to find a conservative government with policies like this, and so you get this sort of. I think what's happening in the world is economic policies are going left, uh, and social policies. Uh, going to the right uh, a little bit, to be really honest. Uh, you certainly see it in the US. Uh, uh, and that is, again, you know, uh, uh, what was happening in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. So politically, it's, it, it, everything's sort of lining up for that change. Uh, it just hasn't happened in financial markets yet. And the question is whether there's something else going on there. Um, Tech-driven, potentially. China-driven, I don't know. Uh, but that is a sort of framework, which makes actually for me, I think, investing incredibly difficult, uh, to be pretty honest. Uh, certainly, I don't think uh, US markets would be trading anywhere near where they are if uh, you could get 5% on a 10-year bond yield, for example, 10-year treasury. Uh, you would have a very, very different market. Um, and that is really the challenge at the moment, is really the challenge of, is, is, you know, do assets mean what happens if rates change uh, and will they change and what causes that? And that that's, I must say, I would have said food prices going up if you asked me a year ago, uh, but they haven't really come through yet. I would love to get your sense of like where you see the end game of the situation that we're currently in right now, right? Because, um, 
you know, at the same time, we've seen suppressed interest rates for, you know, a huge period of time. And, you know, there's this argument, which is, well, with the amount of outstanding debt that we have, interest rates can't be allowed to normalize because that would essentially bankrupt uh, governments, you know, not just the US, but certainly, you know, China or Japan or, or take your pick. Uh, but, you know, I'd be curious to see where do you see the environment shifting from here? Like, how do we get all? Because to, to me, what, what you're describing points to inflation. But, I, you know, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. So, so I'm very curious about where you see us going as a, as a, you know, globally, I guess, over the next 10 years or so. One of the ways I think about interest rate policy is that uh, in a globalized free trading, free trading world, if you allow your currency to appreciate, you are accepting other people's deflation right, into your own economy. Mm-hmm. Um, so one way to think about interest rate policy as we see it today is it's not related to inflation, it's not related to income inequality or anything like that. It's actually industrial policy. So uh, the Japanese go, okay, we're big exporters, uh, we've got all population, we need to have a very low exchange rate because that's what is good for our industry. And actually, uh, WTO and all these other organizations we've drawn, we've signed up to, don't allow us to run old school industrial policy of tariffs or subsidies or anything like that. So the only thing we have available to us is to keep the exchange rate right on the floor. And the only way we can do that is to put interest rates right down to the bottom. That makes sense, yeah? Uh, so if you think of it from that perspective, so the Japanese got, you know, saw their demographics uh, weakened first, and then they were only allowed, the only thing they were allowed to do is put interest rates on the floor. So that's what they did. The problem, of course, oh. is that creates this sort of beggar lie neighbor type policy in that as soon as everyone else gets into trouble, they also have to do the same thing. And then, you know, the only way out uh, of low interest rates, right, and the current market condition we're in where income equality gets bigger is that you have to treat what is normally called independent monetary policy as an industry policy. And so, for example, let's, I'm going to just talk about the UK, okay, uh, to start with. Let's mm-hmm. say the UK, which has very high income inequality, very high property prices, suddenly says, we want to raise interest rates because we want property prices to be more reasonable. Okay, so that young people can buy houses. Let's say that was the policy, mm. right? Now, let's say they raised interest rates 2% without doing anything else. Suddenly, sterling goes up a lot. All the European exporters bring stuff in. You get rising unemployment and the government's in big trouble. Okay? And the policy gets reversed. Mm. That's what's really been what's happening for the last 30 years. So the only realistic way to exit QE is that all governments are currently, or low interest rates, all governments that are currently engaged in it agree to raise interest rates simultaneously. Okay. So that's a tricky one, right? Because no one's going to, no one really wants to do that. Everyone's like looking for a free ride. So the, this is where it's going to get, this I've been thinking about. Uh, so the only way to really make it happen is if, uh, let's say the UK government explicitly says that QE and low interest rates is industrial policy. It's a form of tariff. It's a form of industrial subsidies. So we're going to slap on a 25% tariff on anyone that does QE or has zero or negative interest rates, which would essentially mean putting tariffs, Japan, Europe, 
Switzerland, even the states at current levels, because they're saying you know because they're saying you're keeping your art currency artificially low to be export competitive, which is then causing us to have low interest rates, causing us to have wild income inequality. So anyway, would be a huge political change. But, you know, when I think about it, and we're talking about income inequality and other issues, this is the only way out. Is you have to recognize what exactly QE is. It's always couched in this sort of inflation, monetary policy, you know, full employment jargon. But to me, it looks like an industrial policy. You know, to keep currency weak and competitive, keep wages competitive, and you know. I don't think it's that unreasonable. I mean, I thought Brexit was never going to happen, but it happened because that's what people wanted. Uh, and so you would need a real structural change in how the world works uh, to, to create an environment where monetary policy could go higher. Uh, as far as like we can't afford higher uh, interest rates, I think that's incorrect. Um, you know, asset prices are all time high. Uh, so if governments decide to tax those, they would have more than enough money to pay uh, any debt payments they needed to pay. Uh, it's just a matter of whether they want to or not. Um, and ultimately, you know, it's, it's really all it, all it is is really politics, uh, and whether we and the reality is we get the politicians that reflect our societies. It's an awful thing to say, uh, but we do. That's what we get because that's how you win when you, you need a majority. Uh, and at the moment, I think too too many people benefit from high asset prices. Uh, and that's a part, partly demographics, partly just the way it works. Um, but that is a way out. If you ask me for a way out, that is it. If it's going to happen, I have no idea. Uh, I certainly have no interest in going into politics to try and push a policy like that because I think you'd just be asking for a lot of trouble. But at some point, there probably will be a recognition that we've come into a dead end, intellectual dead end, that creates which is very, very unfair to younger people, which it is. Mm. Uh, and at some point, a yeah. electoral majority will form to do something about it. I agree. I, I, you know, it, doesn't, it certainly doesn't seem like we're in a sustainable system anymore. I kind of doubt this idea that we all just wake up from the concentric hallucina hallucination. I feel like we need some sort of catalyst. Um, I don't know what it is, frankly, because... You know, I think when the GFC happened, there was a lot of speculation that, okay, this was going to be the deleveraging. It wasn't. You know, COVID might have been another opportunity. It wasn't. So I, you know, I don't know what that catalyst ends up being. If you look throughout history, humans tend to need catalysts uh, in order to affect real change. You know, it's that old never let a good crisis go to waste type thing. Yeah. But um, I don't know. I think... Uh... China could well uh, provide a wake-up call for the states, uh, I'll be honest with you. Um, mm. Because you know, in, the 80s, uh, in the 80s, a lot of people convinced Japan was going to overtake the states you know, with superior technology, superior business practices. But the reality is demographics are much smaller population that never made it that likely, as well as Japan being under the US uh, security protection or military protection could never really you know, be that much of a threat. Um, I think China is a bit of a different kettle of fish. And I must say, uh, whenever I talk to Westerners about China, they uniformly just dismiss it as uh, uh, being unable to commit uh, to compete because of various structural issues. And I'm, I'm not that convinced, to be honest with you. Uh, 
Yeah, Chinese have been Chinese Communist Party has constantly been written off uh, at various different times, and yet it's continued to survive. Uh, and you know that is the position that is considered a competitor to the states. Um, I think is a big issue, and I think structurally the U.S. has a really big problem in dealing with China. You know, when you look at the hard data, the U.S. lead in many areas has already disappeared, um, and you know, yeah. So I think it's the end game. Is unless China blows up, which I know the U.S. is trying to make happen uh, through various policies, but if that doesn't happen, then uh, then I think the U.S. could be in trouble because if we start pricing assets off Chinese interest rates rather than U.S. interest rates, then the U.S. will be in big trouble. Uh, Russell, you've already been uh, super generous with your time. Uh, I do want to give a, a plug, actually, uh, to something that you're doing now. I, I know recently that you've been putting out um, some great uh, kind of investment memos and research uh, on a sub stack, which is Russell-Clark, uh, uh, R-U-S-S-E-L-L-C-L-A-R-K. Uh, uh, we can link it in the show notes here. But uh, listeners, if you enjoyed this interview, I highly recommend that you go check out uh, the sub stack. Um, and Russell, if you just have any any other notes or I don't know if you have social media or any other ways for folks to follow you, um, you know, uh, what's the best way for folks to get more information? Yeah, absolutely. You know that uh, sort of Substack I set up at www.russell-clark.com is the best place uh, mm-hmm. to look. Um, so I'm spending just more of my time thinking broadly about different things, trying to get together a uh, a, a worldview that makes sense of all different assets. Um, and this is my attempt at it. Uh, I think it's actually, you know, for me, it's quite interesting. So, uh, yeah, that'd be where, where, where to have a look. I even got some crypto stuff in there. Uh, so, yeah, uh, well, have a look. We didn't there. talk about crypto at all. It's a fascinating asset. Um, where it goes from here, I'm not sure. You know, I, you know, I know when you did uh, your interview with Tyler, um, when he was at Blockworks, uh, he kind of asked you about Bitcoin and you were a little bit more hesitant uh, back then, didn't really have, um, you know, I, I actually remember you specifically saying whenever you have an asset where, you know, it's like kind of supply and demand are the two factors uh, and people tend to say, you know, there's a very predictable price because of that reason. You're like, ah, I'm pushed back on that idea a little bit. Uh, I'd be curious. I don't know how much your viewpoint has evolved on Bitcoin specifically and then the rest of crypto, which is I view as being you know, related to, but pretty different from Bitcoin, very different drivers. Uh, and like, I don't know, what, what do you, what's your kind of commentary or, or view on, on that space in general? The only thing I really noticed about crypto is that the, uh, the bearish positions in crypto have largely disappeared. Uh, so there were very large bearish positions mm-hmm. in them. And you can see that being reflected in market pricing. So the, the one I, I always pay attention to was this, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. So we used to trade a huge premium yeah. to underlying NAV, now trades at a discount. Um, and, and what mm. you've seen there is that the short interest in that, in that uh, trust has collapsed. So mm. my sole observation is that, you know, if you were just investing in Bitcoin on a positional basis, you know, for the last two, three years, positioning was very bearish uh, and that was, you know, very bearish. So if there's any squeeze, it would go higher. Um, what I'd say is the shorts have been squeezed out, right? So mm. if if crypto and particularly Bitcoin can go higher, and it has been going sideways now for, for nine months, uh, 
If you can go higher from here, then it's a sign of true value, right? Uh, what we've seen over the last year or so, year and a half, I think is more a short squeeze. So putting, mm -hmm. it puts crypto Bitcoin into like a GME or an AMC type bucket. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, Reddit driven mm -hmm. short squeeze. Now that, that short squeeze, so you've seen GME, AMC perform more poorly, uh, you know, and Bitcoin has also not performed great recently. If it really is the asset that people think it is, now is a time when it's going to show its true colors. Um, that's where mm -hmm. my thinking is, uh, you know, it's, you know, look, you know, why do we trade dollars or sterling? Because we all accept them. If, if something comes accepted as a currency, right. then it is a currency. But, uh, you know, no one trades Turkish lira. I don't, you know, I wouldn't want to be paid in Turkish lira or Argentinian pesos. So things can go either way. It's, uh, but it's uh, just interesting for like just that's sort of just pure sort of short positioning analysis would say that the it's a slightly different market to what it was a year to 18 months ago. Russell, you've already been super generous with your time. Uh, guys, I'll plug it again. Uh, Russell-Clark, uh, uh, definitely go check out uh, any, any and all of Russell's research. Uh, Russell, thanks so much. We'll have to do it, uh, do it again soon. My pleasure, Michael. Very nice, uh, nice, nice to talk to you. Nice having having you on. I feel like uh, we talked about a lot of random topics, which maybe got a bit off topic, but uh, I hopefully got people got. A, a I love that though. And, okay, well, well then that's fine. Yeah, I, I always prefer to be like laser focused, but there's just so much going on at the moment. I agree. I agree. All right, Russell. Take care. Talk to you again soon.